It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service for Wednesday, July 8, 2020. On today's episode, we have three, count them, three episodes of book talking. First, we have book talking with Janine West, who will be speaking about four books, including The Alice Network, Girls Burn Brighter, and others. Then librarian Jennifer Eisman will speak about four books, including I'll Be Your Blue Sky. Librarian Maria Luisa Morales is here, and she will be speaking about a number of books. But to start and end today's episode, we have Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess. Nick will perform a song at the start of the show, and then he'll be back at the end of the show to perform some more tunes. The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Anybody come from away? Ladies and gentlemen, if you look out your windows, underneath all that rain is Maine. We just crossed the Kind of. 
coming up and the world is coming ashore. If you're hoping for a harbor, then you'll find an open door. And the wind from the water, do whatever's in the way to the ones who have come from a way. We say, welcome to the Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Book Talking. My name is Janine West and I am the director of the Eleanor London Coast St. Luke Public Library. Today I have another four novels that I would like to share with you. As always, I hope that these talks will bring some joy to your day during these difficult times. The first novel that I would like to talk about is called The Alice Network by Kate Quinn. This enthralling historical novel is inspired by the real-life efforts of a network of women spies who worked for the underground in France during World War I. The narrative alternates between the First World War and the period just following World War II. The story follows Charlie St. Clair, who in the aftermath of World War II finds herself pregnant, unmarried, and on the verge of being thrown out of her very proper family. She's also nursing a desperate hope that her beloved cousin Rose, who disappeared in Nazi-occupied France during the war, might still be alive. So when Charlie's parents banish her to Europe to have her little problem taken care of, Charlie breaks free and heads to London, determined to find out what happened to the cousin she loves like a sister. She has only one clue, the name Eve Gardner. And Charlie tracks her down only to find out Eve is a cantankerous alcoholic. The story reverts back to 1915, where the then young and innocent Eve Gardner joins the fight against the Germans and unexpectedly gets her chance when she's recruited to work as a spy. Sent into enemy-occupied France, she's trained by the mesmerizing Lily, the Queen of Spies, who manages a vast network of secret agents right under the enemy's nose. The character of Lily is based on the real life of Louise de Bettigny. De Bettigny had been a citizen of Lille, and when the German army invaded the city in October 1914, she decided to engage in resistance and espionage, due in part to her ability to speak French, English, German, and Italian, she ran a vast intelligence network from her home in the north of France on behalf of the British Army and the MI6 Intelligence Service under the pseudonym of Alice Dubois. This network provided important information to the British and smuggled many British soldiers into England. Arrested by the Germans in 1915, she was sentenced to forced labor for life. After being held for three years, she died in 1918. This fast-paced story offers courageous heroines, villains you love to hate, and dramatic life-or-death stakes, a compelling blend of historical fiction, mystery, and women's fiction with a satisfying conclusion that ties everything up. The next book is entitled Girls Burn Brighter by Shoba Rao. In an instant, you are drawn into Shoba Rao's debut novel, Girls Burn Brighter, and in a second, you feel the need to look away. 
This is a book that contains some horrifying scenes, some of which are almost unbearable to read. But the subject matter is a tough one, one that exposes human trafficking in India and in the United States. The book is about two girls, Purnima and Safitha, who are born into poverty, and because they are girls, are considered worthless by their respective families. They meet as teenagers and become fast friends. However, tragedy strikes and they are driven apart by circumstance. This is the story of their unbreakable bond and their journey across continents to find each other again. Alternating between the girls' perspectives as they face apparently insurmountable obstacles, cruelty and inhumanity on their travels through the darkest corners of India's underworld and across an ocean, Girls Burn Brighter introduces two heroines who refuse to lose the hope that burns within. This is a book that you will not soon forget with strong characters and a plot that keeps you on the edge of your seat. However, reader beware, it is a harrowing read. The best part is the strength of the two heroines throughout the novel and the relationship between them. Next is The White Chrysanthemum by Mary Lynn Brocht. The heartbreaking history of Korea is brought to life in this deeply moving debut that follows two sisters separated by World War II and the strong emotional bonds that tie them together. This book also follows two storylines, one set in World War II in Korea and Japan, and the other set in present-day South Korea. In 1943 Korea, Hannah has lived her entire life under the Japanese occupation. She is a Hanyo, a female diver of the sea who lives with her parents and younger sister on Jeju Island. One day, Hannah saves her younger sister from a Japanese soldier and is herself captured and transported to Manchuria. There she is forced to become a comfort woman in a Japanese military brothel. The second storyline takes place in 2011 and follows Emmy, her younger sister who has spent her entire life feeling guilty about the sacrifice her sister made. The early lives of the sister living in Korea is interesting, and the reader learns about the Hainyo culture and the Japanese occupation of Korea. However, the real thrust of the novel is after Hannah is captured and abducted. It is a devastating account of sexual slavery committed by the Japanese during World War II to an estimated 200,000 women, most of who were Korean. And interestingly enough, it was only in 1993 that the Japanese government acknowledged the existence of comfort women. In 2015, Japan's government officially agreed to recognize its military use of comfort women and to set up a 1 billion yen fund to help them. It did so only on the condition that the Korean government consider the issue resolved and the statute a statue of peace in Seoul, which features a comfort woman, be taken down. Even in late 2017, Japan and Korea were in talks reconsidering this deal. President Moon Jae-in is quoted in saying, many Koreans cannot emotionally accept this deal. And Reuters reported that the Japanese foreign minister said, 
We can by no means accept South Korea's demands for additional measures. It has recently been announced that Moon will not challenge the deal, but he still requests a heartfelt apology. Finally, I'd like to talk about the book Everybody's Son by Thridi Umragar. Umragar's ninth and latest book, Everybody's Son, is her first book that doesn't feature any East Indian characters. It is set in the U.S. and it deals with the provoking subjects of race, power, class, and privilege. At the center of the story is Anton Vesper, a nine-year-old African-American boy whose mother, Juanita, is addicted to crack. She left Anton alone in a locked apartment for days during a heat wave before he broke out and was rescued by the local police. Shortly thereafter, Anton is put into foster care with a judge named David Coleman and his wife, who happen to be struggling with the loss of their teenage son. With Anton's mother in jail, his foster father becomes desperate enough to push beyond the limits of the law to keep Anton forever. As Anton grows up with the Colemans, he becomes accustomed to privilege, and he's encouraged to strive for excellence as he, as, uh, as he achieves. He is Harvard-educated and fast-tracked into politics. This is a book that poses some grave moral questions. Who has the right to judge what is the best way for a person to grow up? If you are biracial, is it better to be with a mother who loves you but is a struggling crack addict, or would it be more beneficial to live with a wealthy white family who can ensure you get into Harvard? Does privilege make you better? Does being white? Those are the uncomfortable moral questions that propel this extraordinary novel and for which there are no easy answers. So, for those of you who want to note these titles, I'll repeat them. The first one, The Alice Network by Kate Quinn. Girls Burn Brighter by Shoba Rao. The White Chrysanthemum by Mary Lynn Bracht. And finally, Everybody's Son by Thriti Umragar. I hope you have enjoyed uh, this book talk. That's it for now. Until we meet again, I wish you well. Be safe, be healthy. Welcome to another episode of Book Talking with Your Librarians. My name is Jennifer Eisman, one of your Cosin Luke librarians and manager of digital learning and resource discovery. Today on my second episode, I wanted to share with you four titles that I've read. If you are looking for some interesting books to read, then hopefully today's broadcast will provide you with some inspiration. The following titles are not brand new or the most popular, but they are nonetheless worth picking up. The first book I would like to talk about today is I'll Be Your Blue Sky by Marissa de Los Santos. Marissa is the New York Times bestselling author of Love Walked In, Belong to Me, Falling Together, and The Precious One. In her latest novel, I'll Be Your Blue Sky, we see a few characters from the first two books, Love Walked In and Belong to Me. However, you do not need to read these books in order. 
I'll Be Your Blue Sky focuses on Claire Hobbs. It is the weekend of her wedding, and she meets an elderly woman named Edith Heron. While they only have a few brief conversations, they provide Claire with the insight and courage she so badly needs to call off her wedding and return home. A few weeks later, Claire receives some sad and surprising news. Edith has passed away and left Claire a seaside guest home in Delaware. Desperately seeking a place to reevaluate her life, Claire moves to the Blue Sky House and there begins to learn more about Edith and the remarkable life she led. Claire feels a deep connection to Edith inside the walls of her new home, which are decorated with old photographs taken by Edith and her beloved husband, Joseph. In an effort to learn more about the woman who left her the house and as a way to distract her from her canceled wedding, Claire begins to explore the guest home. While doing so, she discovers two ledgers, one depicting a list of the guests who stayed at Edith's home when it was a beach guest house, and another more shadowy ledger with mysterious notations. With the help of her former boyfriend, now best friend Dev, Claire starts to unravel Edith's brave and fascinating past. She discovers a story of dark secrets, passionate love, heartbreaking sacrifice, and incredible courage. While Claire is doing all of this sleuthing, she starts thinking more and more about herself and her life. So there's this journey of self-discovery that is happening inside the book as well. The chapters alternate between Claire and the story of Edith. It is a very effective format to uncover characters' personalities on a deeper level. Edith's story mainly takes place in the 1940s and 1950s. She is a fascinating character in the book, one that captures your attention and you instantly want to know more about her. I found the book surprisingly suspenseful, with several unexpected twists and turns thrown in along the way. It is a bit lighter in terms of tone and storyline than I am used to, but I think it would make a fantastic spring-summer read. This isn't a typical love story. Rather, it's a story about family love, romantic love, and the love and kindness of strangers. I'll Be Your Blue Sky is an emotional, evocative novel that probes the deepest parts of the human heart and illuminates the tender connections that bind our lives. It appeals to fans of Jojo Moyce, Ellen Hildebrand, and Nancy Thayer. This is women's fiction at its finest. The relationship the women possess in this novel was something truly special. And yes, there were some tears along the way as I read it. The second title today that I will be talking about is The Girls in the Picture by Bel Melanie Benjamin. Benjamin is the author of the New York Times and USA Today best-selling historical novels, The Swans of Fifth Avenue, which is about Truman Capote and his society swans, and The Aviator's Wife, a novel about Anne Morrow Lindbergh, and the national bestseller Alice I Have Been, which is about Alice Lindell, the inspiration for Alice in Wonderland. So as you can tell by these titles, the author specializes in historical fiction. In fact, she has said, as an armchair historian, I've always been drawn to stories from the past, stories that still resonate today, stories we may not know or remember, untold stories that explore the hidden corners, the locked closets behind the known historical record, deeply personal stories because history only comes alive when we remember that it was made by real people, 
people just like us. This is why I write novels about these people, because facts are for the historians, but emotions are the province of the novelist. The story of the girls in the picture captures all of this. As USA Today stated, it is a rich exploration of two Hollywood friends who shaped the movies, screenwriter Frances Marion and the superstar Mary Pickford. The story is set in 1914 and 25-year-old Frances Marion has left her life in Northern California for the lure of Los Angeles, where she's determined to live independently as an artist. But the word on everyone's lips is flickers the silent moving picture that are enthralling theater goers everywhere. In this fledgling industry, Frances finds her true calling, writing stories for this wondrous new medium. She also makes the acquaintance of actress Mary Pickford, whose signature golden curls and lively spirit have earned her the title America's Sweetheart. The two ambitious young women hit it off instantly. Their friendship fomented by the their mutual passion to create and to move audiences to a frenzy. However, their ambitions are challenged by both the men around them and the limitations imposed on their gender and their astronomical success could come at a price. As Mary, the world's highest paid and most beloved actress, struggles to live her life under the spotlight, she also wonders if it is possible to find love. Frances, too, longs to share her life with someone. As in any good Hollywood story, dramas will play out, personalities will clash, and even the deepest friendships may be shattered. With cameos from such notables as Charlie Chaplin, Louis B. Mayer, Rudolph Valentino, and Lillian Gish, The Girls in the Picture is at its heart a story of friendship and forgiveness. Melanie Benjamin perfectly captures the dawn of a glittering new era, its myths and its icons, its possibilities and potential, and its seduction and heartbreak. The story captures the exciting atmosphere of the movie industry with all of the glitz and parties, but it also gives the reader a look at the issues facing women in this industry. Although this is a piece of historical fiction, this topic is very timely given the recent Me Too movement and the case and subsequent sentencing of Harvey Weinstein, who incidentally is very reminiscent of some of the powerful men portrayed in this book. The struggles Francis and Mary faced helped pave the way for women in that industry and will no doubt sound all too familiar to the reader as women continue to grapple with the same power imbalances, harassment, and the pressure to make concessions on the way, on the way to success. Anytime I read a work of fiction which is based upon real people, it always makes me wonder which details in the book were real and which were made up. It is an excellent way to capture the reader's interest and makes you want to know more about these individual characters. The author goes one step further and provides the reader with a few titles at the end of the book in order to learn more about these historical figures. It is evident that Melanie Benjamin did an enormous amount of research on Mary Pickford and Francis Marion, their families, lovers, husbands, and the movie industry itself. What was particularly appealing about this book was how the author devour, devoted alternating characters, alternating chapters to the main characters. By doing this, the author gives Francis and Mary the chance to tell their own story 
and share their viewpoints with the readers. I think if she hadn't done this, the book would have been very flat and bland. For example, Mary Pickford is portrayed as a sad, stereotyped figure, one whose fans refuse to allow her to grow up. However, with the personalized chapters, Mary Pickford is given a voice and we begin to see a woman with many layers. This book is an excellent exploration of the friendship of strong women, admiration, respect, mutual dependency, jealousy, insecurity. It's all there. The third book on my list today is Paris by the Book by Liam Callahan. This is the story of Leigh and Robert Eady who met outside a bookstore. Leigh is a former film student whose favorite film was The Red Balloon by Albert Lamoris. And Robert is a struggling author who loves the Madeleine books by Ludwig Bemalmans, which is a series of children's books. Both the film The Red Balloon and the Madeleine's children's books are set in Paris and Leigh and Robert's ultimate dream was always to go to Paris one day. But there was never enough money and certainly not years later after they married and have two children. However, one day Robert just ups and disappears, leaving behind his wife and their two daughters and hidden in an unexpected spot, a curious clue, which turns out to be plane tickets to Paris. Hoping to uncover more clues and her husband, Leigh sets off for France with her girls. Upon their arrival, she discovers an unfinished manuscript, one Robert has been writing without her knowledge and that he had set in Paris. The Edie women follow the path of the manuscript to a small floundering English language bookstore whose owner is eager to sell. A missing person, a grieving family, a curious clue, a half-finished manuscript set in Paris, rescuing a failing bookstore and drawing closer to unexpected truths. What more can one ask for in a story? As the family settles into their new Parisian life, they hope more clues will arise. But a series of startling discoveries forces Leigh to consider that she may not be ready to solve this mystery and what it may do to her family and the Paris she thought she knew. Lee's character is well-developed and you may easily understand her struggle for not knowing if her husband is alive or dead. The mystery of Robert's disappearance definitely propels the narrative. Parts of the story are brilliant and fun, while others meander a bit. Leigh's thoughts frequently wonder, pondering the past, struggling with the present, and worrying about the future. But who can blame her given the situation that she finds herself in? At once haunting and charming, if at times a bit slow, Paris by the Book follows one woman's journey as her story is being rewritten, exploring the power of family and the magic that hides within pages of a book. This is a novel about coping with loss and taking a leap of faith by following a dream. The setting of Paris, France, is both romantic and haunting, the descriptions both beautiful and ugly. The author does a beautiful and wonderful job of painting the scene with his words, that it really felt as if I had been transported to a little bookshop in Paris and indeed every other location that was mentioned in the book. The last title on my list today is a debut novel called The Italian Party by Christina Lynch. A delicious and sharply funny page turner about innocent Americans abroad in 1950s Siena, Italy. Scotty and Michael are newly married. Both of them came to the marriage with many secrets and for different reasons. Michael works for Ford selling tractors to the Italian farmers 
but he has a hidden agenda. He wants to bring the American capitalistic ways to Italy and fight communism. Scotty is a girl that got herself into trouble and the only way she sees out is by marrying somebody and becoming the perfect wife. So what happens when two people that hardly know each other move to a country where they don't know anybody? When Scotty's Italian teacher, a teenager with secrets of his own, disappears in Siena, her search for him leads her to discover other darker truths about herself, her husband, and her new country. Michael's dedication to saving the world from communism crumbles as he begins to see that he is a pawn in a much different game. Driven apart by lies, Michael and Scotty must find their way through a maze of history, memory, hate, and love to a new kind of complicated reality. Half glamorous fun, half an examination of America's role in the world, and filled with sun-dappled pasta lunches, charming spies, and horse racing, the Italian party is a smart pleasure. The book was a real page-turner. I kept asking myself, how were Michael and Scotty going to work things out? How and why were secrets going to be revealed? How were people going to react? The way the Italian political culture at the time was portrayed by the author was also very interesting and not the least bit dry. Referred to by one online reviewer as a fancy dessert. It's lovely to look at, but you aren't sure if there will be any substance beneath the decorative frills. But when you dig in, you realize there's more to it than meets the eye. The characters are flawed yet fascinating, and the author did a fantastic job with imagery and details. I strongly recommend The Italian Party to fans of historical fiction or anybody who loves a good story. That's it for today's book talking session. I hope you enjoyed learning about some of these titles. They are available online in our digital resource called Overdrive. Stay healthy, stay safe, Happy reading, and until next time, this has been your librarian, Jennifer Eisman. Good afternoon. My name is Maria Luisa Morales, librarian at the Cots and Luke Public Library. Today I will talk about magical realism in Latin American fiction and will provide you with different titles for your reading pleasure. The magical realist genre is associated with Latin America, but it extends to other parts of the world as well. Consider the titles that I will mention as an invitation to see the world through a different lens, an invitation to be transformed by the page because magical realism offers readers the opportunity to look at the world from a different angle. The familiar becomes strange and the strange in return becomes ordinary. Literary greats like Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Alerjo Carpentier examine the complexities of being human by building worlds that are unexpected yet resonate deeply with readers. Through the unfamiliar, deeper truths are revealed. Magical realism narrative challenges readers to view the impossible as possible. If you find yourself wishing the world was just a bit more magical, it's time to delve into the enchanting realm of magical realism. According to some, it originated in Latin America. The genre blends the realism of everyday life with glimmers of enchantment and fantastical elements often also incorporating political and social commentary. 
These novels are steeped in magic, but grounded in weighty issues and the human condition. In magic realism, the key events do not have a logical or psychological explanation. The magic realist writer does not aim to copy the surrounding reality, as the realists do, or modify it, as the surrealists do, but to capture the mystery hidden in the objects. The Cuban Alejo Carpentier, a celebrated novelist of Latin America, was responsible for the exploration of the apparently fantastic elements in Latin American reality. He pioneered the mode of writing fiction that came to be known as magical realism. He identified the concept in the original prologue to his novel, The Kingdom of This World, published in 1949. The novel depicts the slave revolts that led to Haiti's independence in such a way that historical events often feel like wild imaginings. Carpentier called it the marvelous real. The author tells the story of Haiti's transition from slavery to emancipation after the French colonial days. The magic realist aspects of the novel come through its key character, Tinoel, who finds solitude in mysticism. He successfully learns the art of metamorphosis, successfully transforming himself into animals such as a bird, a wasp, and even an ant. This is an ideal read for anyone wanting to learn more about Haiti's history. For Carpentiers, the marvelous real describes texts where two contrasting views or the, of the world, one magical, one rational, are presented without any conflict by using the beliefs and myths of ethnocultural groups. The supernatural is presented as ordinary in a matter-of-fact way. It relies heavily on superstition and primitive faith and has its source in oral tradition, myths, legends, and folklore. Inspired by his ideas and his novels, literary critics started using the term magical realism to suggest either a peculiar Latin America sensibility to realism or the sense that Latin American reality seems fantastic to those who see it with the conventions of other lands. Magic realism became prominent in Latin America in the mid-20th century, when the continent flourished both economically and culturally. So let's remember that the magic realist author presents the reader with the supernatural and extraordinary set against the backdrop of the real world. Magical elements are revealed in a real setting. One of the major representatives of this genre is Gabriel Garcia Marquez with his book 100 Years of Solitude, published in 1967. Garcia Marquez's literature is imminently rural. It made its readers suspend this belief by presenting the marvelous as everyday reality. He captured a rural reality, recapturing folk beliefs. Consider one of the most important literary works of the 20th century, 100 Years of Solitude is widely accepted as the seminal work of the genre and Marcus Carrier's masterpiece. 
This epic work spans several generations of the Wendia family in the fictional Colombian town of Macondo. Drawing from Colombian history, especially as it pertains to the city of Macondo, the author weaves the intricate tale of seven generations of the family. All of them experience some form of bizarre hardship in a way that mirrors the city's real-life struggles. The fantastic swells through this tragicomic epic of life and death, riches and poverty, triumph and tragedy. Marquez expertly intertwines the real with the magical, the extraordinary with the ordinary and the mythical with the mundane. This book is filled with unforgettable characters and lyrical enchantment. Chronicle of a Death Foretold is an extraordinary novella written by the same author, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, that illustrates how societal issues are highlighted in a literary work with magical realism. A man returns to the town where a baffling murder took place 27 years earlier, determined to get to the bottom of the story. Just hours after marrying the beautiful Angela Vicario, Bayardo San Roman returned his bride in disgrace to her parents. Her distraught family forced her to name her first lover, and her twin brothers announced their intention to murder Santiago Nazar for dishonoring their sister. Yet, if everyone knew the murder was going to happen, why did no one intervene to stop it? The more that is learned, the less is understood, and as the story races to its inexplicable conclusion, an entire society, not just a pair of murderers, is put on trial. Isabel Allende draws significantly for Marquez to tell the tale of the Trueba family in the House of the Spirits, published in 1982. Allende's debut novel chronicles the turbulent political times of post-colonial Chile through the lives of four generations of the wealthy Trueba family. The supernatural is present from the outset, with Allende depicting the otherworldly abilities of one of the novel's main protagonists, Clara. Over the course of the story, the Trueba family's lives intertwine with art and politics in Chile. Expect apparitions mixed into the everyday, time shifts in the narrative and omens being realized, a true masterpiece, not just of the magic realism genre, but also of feminist and Chilean literature. An air of the supernatural hangs about the story as spirits pass in and out with prophecies on their tongues. It's haunting, it's beautiful, and its bestseller status launched Allende's highly respectable career. Light Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquivel was released in Mexico in 1920. Light Water for Chocolate is part novel, part cookbook. Esquivel expertly takes magic realism into the kitchen 
to cook up some truly lovely literary moments. The novel follows Tita de la Garza, the youngest daughter in a Mexican family, and her obstacle reading pursuit of happiness. Her very entrance into the world is laden with magic realist qualities, and her subsequent powers in the kitchen affect anyone who eats her food in the most extraordinary ways. An ideal read for an insight into Mexico's culinary traditions. Fans of magic realism and amazing food would do well to pick up this acclaimed tale of forbidding romance. Tita is the youngest daughter of the all-female de la Garza family in turn-of-century Mexico. Heroine Tita and ranch hand Pedro want to want one another very much. But family traditions dictate that the youngest daughter must remain unmarried in order to care for her mother. In her grief, the heartbroken young woman turns to the culinary arts for comfort and personal expression. Another classic novel in the genre is Doña Flor and Her Two Husbands by Jorge Amado. A long read from Brazil's accomplished author. The novel offers a new take on the classic literature premise of a woman's choice between the exciting but irresponsible bad boy versus the respectable yet dull good guy. Set against the exotic backdrop of Bahia's capital, Salvador, it requires patience for the magic to really kick in. The novel serves as a great introduction to one of the continent's finest storytellers. Amado draws on Afro-Brazilian rituals and folklore to bring to life this wonderfully original supernatural love triangle. Slightly decorated with lyrical recipes from the cooking school of Doña Flor, this is the incredible record of that plumply inviting, earnest and modest woman and her two husbands, devil and saint. Doña Flor's gambling husband, Badiño, dies during carnival. His widow, Doña Flor, dedicates herself to her cooking school and remarries to a kind pharmacist. But Badiño isn't gone for long. And in the flesh he appears, persistent, mocking, up to all sorts of mad tricks with his terrified former gambling companions, and irresistible. Just before he returns to the netherworld, after the gods have battled over Bahia, Badiño assures Doña Flor that the two husbands both feel the needs of an admirable wife. The best way to wrap your head around magical realism is naturally to start reading. And I invite you to read any of the memorable, memorable classics that I mentioned in this program. Or if you feel like reading recently published books with a magical realist touch and written by an international array of authors, here are some titles. The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex Harrow. The 10,000 Doors of January is a beautiful epic adventure brimming with magical realism, but is so much 
so much more than this, full of layers. It is a stark portrayal of the abuses of power and social injustice. The Strawberry Thief by Joan Harris is another book. A death, a confession, and a mysterious new shop bring an expected change to a sleepy town. After having finally settled in, Vianne must face the secrets that lie in her past. Joan Harris returns to the world of chocolate with this intriguing tale that combines mystery and magic. Natalie Tan's book of luck and fortune by Roselle Lim. Lush and visual, chock full of delicious recipes, Roselle Lim's magical debut novel is about food, heritage, and finding family in the most unexpected places. Another title is The Murmur of Bees by Sofia Segovia. From a captivating voice in Mexican fiction comes an astonishing novel about a mysterious child with the power to change a family's history. Set against the backdrop of the Mexican Revolution and the devastating influenza of 1918, the murmur of bees captures both the fate of a country and the destiny of one family that has put their love, faith and future in the unbelievable. And the last title that I have for you today is Lovely War by Julie Berry. After being caught having an affair, the goddess Aphrodite attempts to explain to her jealous husband why love and war are always drawn together. However, the tale that Aphrodite tells may reveal more than she bargained for. Said during the First and Second World War, the lovely wars is the story of a pianist and a soldier. It's also the story of two musicians on opposite sides of the world. This is a story about prejudice, tragedy, friendship, and the power of love. Thank you for listening. Take care and all the best. And remember that we can use fiction as entertainment to escape this time of confinement. I'm going to break the piano one day with those buttons. Hmm, another big song that usually plays around Pride Time. I am what I am. I am my own special creation. So come, take a look. Give me the hook or the ovation. It's my world that I want to have a little pride in. My world, and it's not a place I have to hide in. Life's not worth a damn till you can say hey world I am what I am I am what I am I don't want praise I don't want pity I bang my own drum some think it's noise I think it's pretty and so what if I love each feather and each mango why not try to see things from a different angle? 
song that I will play from Showboat, and it goes like this. But along came Bill, who's not the type at all. You'd meet him on the street and never notice him. His form and face, his manly grace are not the kind that you would find in a statue. And I can't explain it's surely not his brain that makes me thrill. I love him because he's not know, because he's just old Bill. He is just my Bill and an ordinary boy. He hasn't got a thing that I can brag about. Surely not his brain that made 
concludes this segment of Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. 
and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Cote St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.